Well, if you have been following along with the college admissions cheating scandal, you know it involves celebrities, it involves CEOs, it involves a businessman from BC. In just a moment, we are going to bring in an education director at Key Education. But first, take a listen to this report with the latest on what's happening with the scandal. The investigation into the college admissions scandal appears to be widening at Yale. After a school soccer coach was indicted for accepting bribes, Yale's president now says the college is conducting its own review to learn whether others have been involved in activities that have corrupted the athletic recruitment and admissions process. Would you um, stop? On Friday, actress Felicity Huffman was back in court with her husband, William H. Macy. She's accused of paying $15,000 to have someone correct her daughter's answers on the SAT. Here you go. These are on the house. Earlier this week, the Hallmark Channel cut ties with actress Lori Loughlin after she and her husband, designer Massimo Giannulli, allegedly paid half a million dollars to get their two daughters into USC. I don't really care about school. Their daughter, Olivia Jade, a social media influencer, lost deals with Sephora and Tresemme. Are you angry? I am furious. Hared Franco is a student at UCLA, where a soccer coach was arrested after allegedly accepting bribes to help an applicant get admitted. What do you think should happen to these kids? I think that they should still face the consequences and be reevaluated or have their admissions revoked. This idea of college admissions being a meritocracy, a pure meritocracy, it's just not true. Arun Panasami is a former college admissions officer. How do these schools rebuild the trust in their admission systems? I think they're going to have to increase the transparency. It just feels far too mysterious how they make their decisions. Lawsuits filed this week target both parents and colleges accused in the scandal. One mother is seeking $500 billion in damages after her son was rejected from several of the schools named in the alleged scam, including UCLA. Let's bring in Brian Ide, who is an education director at Key Education. That is a uh, private school and college preparation consulting firm located in Vancouver. Brian, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Yes, uh, good morning, Jill. Thank you for having me. What are your thoughts so far on what we're seeing in the United States and the allegations that are being made in this case? Uh, a wide range of emotions, uh, anger, disappointment. You know, you can't help to feel really bad for students who might have been cheated out of a rightful place at one of these universities. Anger at uh, what's just been going on, the fact that there is this cheating that is happening. Um, and, and just disappointment for our industry. Um, you know, we're obviously not being uh, uh, presented in the best light, given what's happened. And, and when you say your industry, so maybe I'll back up a little bit. So what exactly does your firm, what does Key Education do as far as helping students for their future education? Yes, uh, Key, uh, one of the services that we provide uh, is advising families on, and students on picking the right fit uh, independent school or universities. Uh, we also offer tutoring. We also offer early childhood classes. So we, we offer a wide range of services. And the consulting piece is only one small part of what we do. All right. And how competitive is it? You must see students and parents that come to you that want their kids to be going to these, uh, these uh, whether it's an Ivy League school or a school with a good reputation. How competitive is it uh, what you see in people who will, will take these take uh, measures to get in? Yes. Um, you know, it is incredibly competitive out there. You know, when you're talking about the Ivy League, you're looking at single-digit acceptance rates. 
so it is incredibly difficult uh, to, to get into some of these schools. Even some programs in Canada were looking at single-digit acceptance rates. So I can understand the pressure that families feel, and especially the pressure that students feel uh, in order to um, do everything they can to um, put forward a strong application. The issue happens when uh, certain families or certain students are willing to cross those ethical boundaries, um, you know, whether it's cheating on an exam or having someone write, someone else write their college admissions essay for them. That's where it gets really uh, problematic. Uh, is it surprising to you, though, because we've, we've been hearing more and more stories about uh, people with the means will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on tutoring, on prepping their students. And I mean, that's one thing. And if you've got the money to do that, that's great. It gives you certainly would give you a heads up in getting into these mm-hmm. schools. Uh, but then now we're hearing of people that have the means are not doing that. And now they're accused of skipping to the part to where they're bribing to get their kids in. Exactly. And I think, you know, this goes against what we teach our students and what we teach our children that, you know, we're supposed to do things the right way, the ethical way, the fair way. Um, You know, yes, you you are you are right. Um, There are families out there who can afford uh, supplementary services, tutoring, um, you know, classes and so forth. And that is one thing. But um, just to simply cross into you know cross that line what does that say about the parents what does that say about the students that uh, they need to go down that that avenue of um, unethical conduct are you concerned at all that this will uh, shed a negative light on even some of the work you do or if there's now this this idea uh, because it's certainly not new as far as there are families that that uh, build buildings for schools that dedicate buildings that make huge donations and it's always been known that that would give you a bit of a heads up uh, are you concerned that this now puts a very negative light that it goes beyond that um you know i, I think there's there there are two parts to that yes uh it does not make our industry look good, especially when our industry does have reputational issues because uh, it really is the Wild West. Anyone can essentially, in, uh, anywhere, can call themselves a consultant. There is no standardization or accreditation process in our industry uh, for people to advise families um, on the uh, process for applying to an independent school or to a university. Uh, on the flip side, though, I think, you know, the one small silver lining I can see in all of this is that it has shone a light on the industry and hopefully people uh, and consumers will be uh, savvy when they are picking an education consultant. They're going to pick a consultant who does have credentials or who does have experience and who uh, most importantly uh, will adhere to certain ethical values and guidelines. Uh, do you think there should be then a standardization or there should be something in place to, to make sure uh, everybody is up to that? Everybody that, that calls themselves a counselor or a consultant is up to, at the same level? You know, on, on one hand, I, I think it's really important. I think, you know, what, you know, you look at other industries, doctors, lawyers, bankers uh, and so forth, and they have to go through their own uh, accrediting processes and uh, regulatory processes. Um, and I think in our industry, it would be good to have an accreditation process or some formal mechanism where people have to be able to justify that they are qualified. But, you know, the sad part on the flip side is, is that um, 
a dishonest consultant and a dishonest student is going to be dishonest regardless. And those are the type of people who don't even want to go through an accreditation process or who don't care to uh, engage in um, the right ethical conduct anyway. So uh, on the one hand, it, it would be good. But on the other hand, you know, you're, you're still going to have these bad apples out there. Right. And, and, and that leads to a, another issue, too, in that how easy is it to do this, to, to go around the system, to hire somebody to take a test, to fly somebody in to take a test? It seems like, well, obviously there are allegations, there are charges laid. So this is an investigation that led to that. Uh, but this is something, if true, it's been going on for quite some time. Yes. Um, and, you know, this is, as you said earlier, this is not new. Um, and in fact, you know, you can easily look back at stories where uh, there has been uh, rampant cheating on the SAT, for example. The SA, the college board that administers the SAT um, has, um, has had to cancel certain exams because of the, um, the strong belief that certain, uh, certain test centers were, uh, you know, were, were compromised or that people were cheating on the test. So, yeah, um, the, you know, this has been going on for quite a while. And do, is there an expectation, do you find, in that you work with students, you would work with parents, is there a certain expectation that in, in doing this extra work and tutoring or whatever it is that they, they do, that, that it will lead to success in getting into the school of choice? Um, I think for the vast majority of parents that we work with, uh, they are reasonable. They understand that, it, number one, it is competitive, and number two, you know, even if my child is strong, that there are other, a lot of other strong children out there. Uh, a lot of these parents just want that extra bit of preparation. Um, you know, we do find a small, um, a small fraction of parents who are fairly unrealistic with their expectations, who believe that, uh, you know, by using our services, there's a, uh, there's a guarantee that they're going to be able to get in. And that's just simply not the case. Right. I, I'm not surprised by that at all. There's, sometimes uh, there, there tend to be blinders when we're looking at uh, members of our own family. Absolutely. Uh, so moving forward from this, now that this is happening in the States, uh, there are connections here in BC. What do you think? And you mentioned this uh, a bit as far as the silver lining. What can we learn from this or can we learn from this and, and make it so it's, it's something that, that perhaps would be more difficult or won't happen again? Well, I think there's lots of lessons to learn from multiple quarters. You know, on the university side, universities need to uh, tighten up their safeguards in terms of the emissions process, who is involved, who are the decision makers, ensuring that the decision makers who can influence a decision one way or another um, really are uh, following ethical guidelines. Uh, I think the emissions process, especially in the United States, um, has to be demystified. There's just too much um, that families don't really understand in terms of the process. And, and the schools have deliberately kept that process kind of vague so that they are able to operate with as much flexibility as possible. I think for parents, parents need to have conversations with their, with their children, making sure that you know, they are teaching them the right way to do things. And then you know, students themselves need to uh, put in the the effort, put in the work that's necessary uh, in order to get a successful result. And I think most importantly to a student, if you don't get in, that's not a reflection on you yourself. You know, um, 
you can always try again. There's always other options. And I think a big message to students is success is defined however you want to define it. So you can be incredibly successful and not have to go to an independent school or to an Ivy League university, per se. Uh, and the last, I think, is for our industry uh, in terms of consulting. Um, it is an opportunity for those of us who are doing it the right way to reaffirm our values and reaffirm that we are going to um, follow um, ethical conduct. And whenever we hear of people not following ethical con- uh, or doing things ethically, we're going to call them out. All right. Uh, sounds good indeed. Brian, we are out of time, but thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk about this today. appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you again. As, as you've likely been hearing in the news, uh, BC's health minister has been uh, talking about the decision to roll privately run home support services into the health authorities. It was an announcement that came as a surprise to a lot of people. And one of those, the BC Care Providers Association and CEO Daniel Fontaine joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Daniel, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. What does this mean? Because there seems to be a lot of confusion or a lot of a difference of opinion when we hear from the health minister, we hear from the seniors mm-hmm. advocates saying they don't think there will be any job losses, that this will be fine. Uh, but we hear from you and we hear from some others saying, actually, there will be job losses and there's there are going to be some big issues with this. Well, I think it's important for people to first understand how this all unfolded. So we are, as the BC Care Providers Association, the largest and essentially the only uh, sector association representing all of the home care providers in the province of British Columbia. We had to learn about this through the media. We were not consulted. No one asked us a single question on what the potential impacts might be, what the unintended consequences to seniors' care might be. I had to read about this in the newspaper. In fact, not only did I read about it in the newspaper, they actually, in the process of notifying our membership, that they were going to expropriate all these jobs, they put a gag order on them. So they weren't even allowed to speak to us. So there's a reason why there's a bit of confusion. And part of that relates to the fact that we're learning about all of this literally in the last uh, few days. And we're trying to piece together exactly what's happened. And do you mean the gag order, do you mean on the workers themselves or on who? On the care providers. Uh, for example, on in Beacon Community Services, on the island where they were negotiating with Beacon Community Services to take over those jobs, they imposed a gag order on the staff there so that the staff could not uh, speak to me, they could not speak to our association, they couldn't seek any advice, and they went and put gag orders on every single uh, private and community agency that was going to be impacted on this so they couldn't speak until the announcement was public. Hmm. And so how will it actually change care, do you think? Because people listening to this want to know what will change, what might stay the same. And uh, mm-hmm. to use an example then, because I think there's some confusion about that too. I, I'm just using this because it's one that I'm familiar with. So if we take a, a couple of facilities uh, in Tawasin and South Delta, so a Kin Village facility, which is a subsidized facility, and then say a Waterford facility, which mm-hmm. is a private seniors uh, facility, what will happen in those places? What will change? Yeah, so first of all, I should clear up because that is where the confusion occurs. This is, at, at least right now, this is not impacting care homes. This okay. is impacting home care. So if you're living in a single-family home or a condo or an apartment and you're getting your home care brought to you to your home, that is what's being impacted. That, we believe, is phase one of this. There will be likely more to come in terms of residential care. We'll see where the government goes on that. And we think child care will be next as well in terms of them taking over their those jobs. But for now, 
The first phase is they're essentially taking all the home care workers that were working for the community agencies. They're going to basically bring them into the public service. They're going to make them government employees. So they're going to go from the working for a community nonprofit to uh, uh, basically expropriating those jobs and turning them into government workers. That is what they're doing. It will not impact long-term care for now. For now, it'll just impact home care services. All right. And at this point, what percentage or what level of home care services do you provide or are, are in the, 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 the private side? Yeah, so for, for us, uh, there are basically um, six large uh, community organizations and, and nonprofits that uh, and organizations that deliver that service. They do basically half of Vancouver Island, and they do a, a fairly large chunk of it here in the Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley area. That's, those are the three areas that are mainly impacted, and there's quite a bit of service. In fact, for over 30, I think 35 years in the Metro Vancouver region, this service has been uh, essentially uh, contracted to these community agencies. In fact, what's really disappointing to me in all of this, Jill, as I was thinking over the last few days as I'm trying to process all this information, I've been going to Ottawa. I've been working really hard to, to lobby the federal government to bring more home care dollars to British Columbia. I've been working to get dollars in so that these community agencies who've been underfunded for so many years would finally have the opportunity to have the funding they need to to provide someone with uh, help with laundry or an extra little bit of to get a cup of tea or medications. Finally, the federal government two years ago provided that funding. I did not imagine in my wildest dreams that those dollars that were coming in from the federal government would be used by the provincial NDP government to expropriate 4,000 jobs and to, to have this become the largest expansion of the public service in the history of our province. I'm astonished by that. What is the difference in in benefits and compensation, say, mm-hmm. if you are right now a worker under the, the Care Providers uh, Association compared to if you're a government worker? Yeah, so the, the, the all the employees uh, that are the care staff, they're covered under the Master Collective Agreement. So there should be no difference in terms of like the wages and benefits. But what we have talked about this week is that there's a lot of workers who are not covered under that agreement, under that Master Collective Agreement. We met earlier this week in an emergency meeting once we were advised of this happening. We were able to, in early estimates, uh, uh, be able to tally up about 500 non-unionized staff that will be laid off in the next 12 months. So, uh, yes, there will be uh, uh, no change to the wages of the workers that are, that are going to be transferred over, but there will likely be about 500 people that will be losing their jobs as a process of, of, of this. And, and then the other important thing to remember is the government thinks that they can just simply expropriate these 4,000 people and move them into government co- uh, jobs. Remember, not everyone wants to work for the government. A lot of people enjoy working for community agencies, and they, they prefer the flexibility and the ability to work in those types of work environments as opposed to working with one large entity like the health authority. So we're estimating that between 5 to 7% of that workforce likely will say to themselves, I'm going to retire early, I'm going to leave, I don't want to work for the government anymore. And we're in the midst of a health human resource crisis. We can't find enough care staff as it is. So to roll the dice on seniors care and say that, as the seniors advocate said, she said the best thing that can come of all of this is that nobody notices any differences. Well, I, I don't know about you, Jill. I would not want to gamble with all of the seniors' home care in this province with the hope that the service will simply stay the same. And, and I think that's where, where people are, are getting a bit confused also because both the health minister and the seniors' advocate are saying, I, I think they took issue with that number that you put out of 500 jobs saying that they're mm-hmm. actually putting more money in to hire more care aides and support staff. 
No, look, they have not uh, consulted with our sector. If Had they sat down and talked to us in advance, as opposed to putting gag orders, doing this in the back rooms in some secret, some secret locations, they would have been able to actually talk to the care providers and walk through where these impacts uh, are going to be. The, the, what uh, Ms. McKenzie, who I might add uh, works very closely with the organized labour within this province, that's been uh, evident over the last year, she seems to be more concerned about what the hospital employees union and other major unions in this province are going to think about her rather than actually speaking out for seniors. I have to say that the seniors advocate, in my opinion, if, if Mary Ellen Turpel Lafon were the seniors advocate in this province, she would be screaming blue bloody murder right now that this could potentially have massive impacts on home care services in the province. Rather, we have a seniors advocate who reports to the minister, I might add. She's not independent. She's silent. And I think that seniors across this province should be asking why their own seniors advocate is not speaking out on this. Uh, do you find then uh, trying to figure out or, or find some reason as to why this was done? I, I mean, mm-hmm. can we simplify it to the point that we have an NDP government and this is part of the battle against privatized health care? Jill, it's ideology, plain and simple. There is no business case for this. I've, I've listened. I've tried to read between the lines of what the minister is saying and with what others are saying about this. I, I simply have to say this is all about ideology. There, we saw this in the 1990s when the NDP government then tried to take over uh, uh, long-term care homes that were non-profit. Uh, at the end of the day, it got fought in court in Glacier View Lodge. Uh, I don't know if you remember that court case. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. Glacier View Lodge, a, a, a non-profit care home, fought the B.C. government and they won. And it's the reason that they won that court case is the reason why we still have independent and community-based long-term care in this province. I'm afraid this is like deja vu all over again, but now it's happening in home care. And this is the the largest expropriation of of jobs that we've seen in the history of our province. I'm just astonished that that, uh, the NDP would be doing this. But at the end of the day, it's up to the minister and up to the government to justify why they're doing all of this potentially putting home care uh, services uh, and disrupting them over the next 12 months, all for what? Uh, I still don't know other other than this is ideologically driven. All right, we'll leave it there. I know we will talk to you about this uh, more in the future. Daniel Fontaine, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. Well, this last Friday was World Sleep Day, and I generally don't buy into those world fill-in-the-blank days, but on this program, I think a lot of people struggle with sleep. Whether you're a shift worker, you just can't sleep, you're up early in the morning. If you do have a sleep disorder, you are not alone. About 40% of Canadians, according to research, will suffer from some sort of sleep disorder in their lifetime. And we're going to talk a bit more about that. Joining me on the line is Dr. John Fleetham, founder and co-director of the Leon Judah Blackmore Center for Sleep Disorders. And uh, he's on the line with us now. Dr. Fleetum, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. Seems like a, a large number, 40% of people will have some sort of sleep disorder in their lifetime. Yeah, it's true. I mean, but, but many of them are just sleep issues related to lifestyle issues. So shift work, jet lag, use of electronics. Um, and all of these can, can improve and impact, uh, improve if you deal with them and impact sleep. But, but then there are many other sort of complex sleep disorders, such as sleep apnea, narcolepsy and parasomnia and, and REM behavior disorder. And these actually require a more accurate diagnosis and treatment. So, you know, sleep disorders are many common, uh, are very common, but many of them are related to lifestyle issues 
uh, but there are a smaller number which actually require medical care and, and diagnosis. All right. Uh, you're doing a study or there's a study being done at the center. Do you think, do we pay enough attention to sleep? Because it seems to be uh, the one thing. I mean, people are busy. They have very busy lives. It seems to be the, the first thing that we uh, will let go, uh, thinking that it's not uh, as important as maybe some other things in our lives. Yeah, the fundamentals of good health are exercise, diet and good sleep. We spend a lot of time talking about diet, a lot of time talking about exercise, but we tend to neglect uh, sleep. Uh, ever since we've had electrical lighting, television, the internet, and caffeine, all of these have impaired our, our quality of sleep. And with more study then being done on this and taking a look at uh, what it is uh, that, that leads to sleep disorders or how we can fix them, do you think we will get a better idea? Yes. I mean, there's, there's much more attention being paid to sleep. Um, one thing is to mention, actually, to Vancouver listeners is, is in September, the World Sleep Society, because of the interesting sleep, uh, we have our 4,000 experts coming to Vancouver uh, September 21st. There's actually going to be a two-day um, patient awareness program. And so this is part of the increasing focus in terms of uh, diagnosis of sleep disorders, but also research into it. And you talked, you mentioned shift workers, and uh, there are a lot of shift workers uh, right across the country. Uh, is that something that you can adapt to and still get good sleep, or is it very destructive when it comes to sleep patterns? No, I mean, shift work interrupts. I mean, the body likes a, a 24-hour clock. It likes consistency. And the trouble with shift workers, and about 10% of workers are shift workers, it interrupts that, that regular cycle. So as a shift worker, you're much more likely to have insomnia, but also more likely to have other significant sleep disorders, such as sleep apnea. And diet as well. You mentioned caffeine and such. How, how much of a connection is there between diet and sleep? Well, caffeine is the most important one. And, you know, we always think of caffeine in, in, uh, in, in drinks, in tea, in coffee, but, but actually they're in many pain relievers. Uh, they're in chocolate. So, so, you know, one of the important things in terms of improving your sleep hygiene is actually to reduce your caffeine intake, especially after um, you know, midday in the day. Uh, so you're, you're seven or eight hours caffeine free by, by the time you go to sleep. Now, if you don't have any problem sleeping, then, then that's not a problem. Many people will have a stiff coffee in the evening. But if you are having trouble falling asleep or, or staying asleep, uh, then that's one important lifestyle uh, change to make. Indeed. Uh, you mentioned the 24-hour the clock and how the body likes that. What about the idea of breaking it up? Or do we need to sleep for uh, chunks of time uninterrupted? Or what about people that might sleep a bit in the evening or, sorry, a bit overnight and maybe nap during the day? I mean, sleep duration is important uh, and it's important to have consistent long sleep. In general, we pr prefer to avoid naps because it interrupts the, the normal sleep cycle. But again, if someone's sleeping, the, the, the best a time in terms of sleeping is to sleep seven or eight hours. And if people are sleeping that, then there's not an issue. If, if they aren't sleeping seven or eight hours a night, then that's when they need to adapt their lifestyle. Um, so, you know, for most adults uh, tonight, actually getting seven or eight hours of sleep, uh, is probably the most important thing they can do for their future physical and mental health. And does it change over the course of your life as you get older? Do you need less sleep or more sleep? No, I mean, you know, children need more sleep for optimal learning and play. Uh, but as you get older, uh, you're more influenced by other things. You're more, 
if you have pain, um, if you have other medical issues, then you're more likely to have your sleep interrupted. And the prevalence of sleep disorders progressively increases like, like every other condition sort of as you get older. And what are the dangers of ignoring something like the beginning signs of a sleep apnea or another medical condition about sleep? Well, the consequences of poor sleep are uh, poor concentration, memory loss, irritability. But as you get uh, more severe, you're more prone to get infections, you're more prone to gain weight, more prone to develop um, type 2 diabetes, um, more prone to, to have motor vehicle or occupational accidents. So and more likely to develop um, heart attacks, strokes, and Alzheimer's. So, so sleep is, has been shown to be very, very important in terms of long-term health. Definitely. And, and it is so fascinating, I find, that you just listed off a, a long list of very serious conditions. But again, we, we tend to sleep, we, we'll, we'll scrimp on it. It's the first thing that, that we will often go without. Yeah, well, that's why we have World Sleep Day, which is it's an annual global call to action of the importance of, of healthy sleep. Poor sleep equals poor health. Uh, sleep disorders are very common, uh, and poor sleep and sleep disorders report, uh, result in impaired quality of life and decreased life expectancy. And do you find, are there, is it, are there success rates, or, or is it... Uh, because, because it's another thing that we hear people say, oh, I'm just a horrible sleeper, and people sometimes seem resigned to that. Uh, but it is something, is it something that you can fix? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, most sleep disorders are preventable and treatable. Um, but it's, it's a sad fact that only about 30% of the population will seek help in that regard. And would you like to see that number uh, much higher? Yes, I mean, clearly, you know, I'm, I'm on the radio to promote the importance of sleep. I mean, as I say, most of it can be dealt with with lifestyle issues, but if people have sleep disorders, then it's important to see sleep specialists. And, and there, are, there are now 14 um, uh, sleep disorder centres across the province in, in BC. And interesting. So it does seem we are paying, we're starting anyway, to pay more attention to it. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's been slow to, to gather, but, but as I say, uh, we have... Four or five thousand people coming to Vancouver this September, which is gives you some idea of the importance that others are, are focusing on sleep, and, and they're coming to Vancouver because of its uh, reputation in that regard. And so it's 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 one more evidence in terms of this field is growing. All right. Well, my guess is uh, we may talk about this again in September. Uh, Dr. Fleetum, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, this weekend, more than 700 teachers from right across the province are gathering in Victoria. It is for the start of the BC's Teacher Federation, Teachers Federation's annual general meeting. And BCTF President Glenn Hansman joins me on the line now. Glenn, thanks for taking some time with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's gorgeous over here in Victoria today. It's lovely here too. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about a number of things. One of them is your term as president is going to be coming to an end. Uh, I saw Keith Baldry uh, was tweeting about uh, a few hours ago about uh, Terry Mooring uh, being the new president. Do we know who the new president is going to be at this point? Well, it'll likely be Terry. It's uh, uncontested. We had our candidate speeches for president and the two vice president positions last night. And She's the only one running, uh, but the actual official decision is on Tuesday morning because there's still the ability for people to run from the floor. She's going to be great. She is a, a longtime intermediate teacher from Quinell. I've been working with her for the past six years, and um, she was there um, when Jim was president as well, and I've really appreciated her insights, and I, uh, I actually 
feel very confident passing the baton to her when the time comes. Uh, and Keith mentioned this in his tweet, uh, that uh, noting the fact that she had tweeted out about uh, some of the comments that were made by Chilliwack school trustees about dress code and, and many people shaking their heads at some of the things that were said, uh, saying that it's good to see uh, somebody that's taking a strong position on that and that's now going to be going into a leadership role as well. Yes, no, I'm very happy about that because I think... Uh, Yesterday, one of the trustees was doing an interview on News 1130 or, or another station and uh, was somehow implying that I was, I myself was out on a limb criticizing him and teachers didn't have my back. <laughs> and, uh, our AGM last night was very clear. Those sorts of comments are not on. And Terry will also bring a very strong equity lens to our work and not being afraid to sort of speak out when people are saying things that are completely out of whack. We, we're in a very difficult time right now, especially for our members and our students and community members that come from a variety of equity-seeking groups. And so to have an elected official be making comments like this, implying that somehow sexual assault is the victim's fault or that girls have to cover themselves up because boys can't control themselves, it's totally ridiculous. We do need to teach consent in schools. And we have to make sure that everyone's safe, not just when they're students, but when they go off and, and work and, and seek employment or participate in their community. And it's, it's not about um, girls having to be responsible for the behavior of boys and men. No, uh, the comments, uh, some of those comments seemed like they weren't uh, coming from this century, that's for sure. Uh, Talk a bit about bargaining. That's something else uh, that is uh, top of mind for many teachers and underway. Where are we with that? Well, we have started, um, and there's a protocol in place with the parties where the, uh, the specifics of proposal, uh, proposals will remain at the table. But uh, tone's been good so far, and um, oh, hopefully everyone is uh, working pretty hard to date, and we have many, many dates at the table scheduled between now and the end of June, and uh, I look forward to getting it finished before I'm done. All right. Uh, what else is, is top of, of the agenda then as far as being discussed at the convention and for, for teachers in this province right now? Well, we're very concerned with where the Ministry of Education might potentially be going with a review of its funding model, how it gets money out to school districts, and then how that money is turned into services for students. And it's been a long time since that's been reviewed. Last time it was done, it was actually imposed by the BC Liberal government without any consultation, along with unconstitutional legislation, a bunch of other things. This time, government is doing right by taking the time and being thorough. So I was uh, lauding uh, Minister Fleming for taking a bit more time when a report was released back in December. But there's some specific pieces in that report we're extremely concerned about, especially when it comes to how students with special needs will see their services funded. And we're worried that the recommendation that is being proposed by the independent panel that the minister put together takes us backwards and would make it harder for parents to advocate for their children with disabilities. It would leave teachers guessing from year to year what the actual supports needed are. And we wouldn't be able to as easily follow the money to make sure that students with special needs are getting their fair share of what's needed to fund their accommodations. And so we want to see some modeling. There's going to have to be some um, pretty honest and open conversations about these things because ultimately we need to be boosting services in our schools. We've seen a big influx of teaching positions because of our successful core win. Um, And it's always within the power of government to be 
boosting operational funding so we could start filling in some of the other gaps. We don't want to create a system, though, where parents are having to further advocate for their kids and wait a long time to get their kids the supports they need, especially when it's children with special needs that have specific learning disabilities. So what is happening with that? Because you mentioned the court case, and I know there was difficulty as far as recruiting teachers, retaining teachers, getting the numbers back up. What, where are we uh, with that, with restoring things? Well, in the interior and the north, the Peace region, we still have a lot of positions sitting vacant. The um, list of on-call teachers or um, substitute teachers that we would call elsewhere are almost entirely made up of people who are retired or people who don't have teaching certificates at all. We have people working in classrooms now in parts of the province that um, either aren't trained as a teacher or in the case of French immersion programs, not enough French-speaking people to fill some of those things. And so there still has to be a massive recruitment of teachers from out of province to fill all those jobs with not just bodies, but certified people, qualified people for the positions, and then to account for the fact that student enrollment is continuing to go up. You know, we have birth rates continue to go up, and more families with children are moving into British Columbia, and so we need the teachers to work with them. And so we have been happy that both Mr. Melanie Merck and Mr. Rob Fleming have announced um, in their respective portfolios some funds for about 150 more teacher education program spots, and those folks will start to graduate and come to the system. But 150 spots alone isn't going to make up the difference. So if we're not going to boost the supply of certified teachers within the province, then we need the ability to attract more and get people to stay once they're here from other provinces. And so we, um, we're we still calling for a funded and provincially coordinated um, effort with the involvement of the Ministry of Education to make that happen. And we will see. It's uh, what what I'm concerned about is there's an awful lot of sort of minimizing or the implication that we turn the corner on the shortage. We have in some areas, some school districts, but when it comes to the north and the interior, French American positions, some of those specialty roles, we have a lot, many, many more bodies that we need. And we have to make BC more attractive because the demand is only going to get bigger as student enrollment continues to go up. Which, which would suggest, too, at bargaining, it's going to be uh, teachers looking for much more than two, two, and two if we're talking about being competitive and getting people to move here. Well, salary is one of the one of the ways, and uh, the other public sector agreements that have been reached have been within that general wage increase. Um, framework that the province has adopted, but there are other ways of restructuring grids, adding to steps, uh, looking at um, the low end of the wage categories and sort of make some readjustments to make BC more attractive. But in addition to that, we need to look at sort of the inconsistency of supports from school uh, school districts, not by leveling down. We don't want to take away from any school district that has sort of better uh, class size or class composition, but to try to fill some of those holes and so that Parents will know that there's comparable supports for their kids in all school districts. And so when people are applying from jobs, either from other province or even within BC, they know that they're going to be going to somewhere where they can survive and thrive as a teacher so that the students in their class can thrive and survive as students and uh, hopefully graduate and go off and do the post-secondary program or enter the field of employment that they're interested in. All right, Glenn, we will leave it there as uh, I know you're busy with the convention as it uh, continues uh, the meeting this weekend. Thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. 
Thank you. Have a great day. Well, yesterday on the program, we uh, talked with Sarah Kirby Young, who is a Vancouver City Councillor, and we were talking about the vote at Vancouver City Council, and it has to do with funding for various organizations. One of those organizations, the one we're talking about, is Vancouver Rape Relief. And Council voted that the funding would stop, and this has been going on. They've been funded. They've been receiving funding from the city for years. But after 2019, that funding will stop unless Vancouver Rape Relief changes one of its key policies. And I'm pleased now to welcome Hilla Kerner onto the program. Hilla Kerner is a spokesperson with Vancouver Rape Relief. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Of course. Good morning. Uh, so walk us through from, from your perspective how this all happened as far as the vote came up, the issue came up at council, uh, with council saying that uh, Vancouver Rape Relief needs to be more inclusive when it comes to transgendered women, uh, people who identify as women. Uh, and what is your response to that? So in terms of how it all happened, we now understand that there were probably weeks of lobbying behind the scene to discourage uh, city council members to uh, vote in the in supporting of the grant that we receive and even in the moment itself we were not told that this is going to happen by accident an ally saw on social media midnight the day before that um there will be some oppos- people posted on social media that they plan to um speak at the city council meeting and discredit uh, Vancouver Rape Relief. So in the very last minute, we put our name forward and we got some formal opportunity to speak. But um, there were a lot of misinformation that were allowed to be presented to city councils by by people who are opposing us. And we, there were a lot of challenges. And But the, the, at the end of the day, the, the real question is, is it appropriate for the city council to uh, force the hand of independent, autonomous women's groups? We're the oldest rape crisis center in Canada. We serve thousands of women, Vancouver women, every year. Is it appropriate to force us to change how we operate? And our answer is it's not democratic, it's bullying, it's unethical, and we are um, committed to our principle and our policies for a very particular reason, we are um, working with women who were born female and raised as girls into womenhood because we see it and understanding it in the bigger context of women's oppression. We are still living in a world, even in Vancouver, in North America, that most of us, once we are born female, we are born to an oppressed class without a choice. And um, our frontline work is an expression of the bigger fight we want to have of transform this re- situation, of uh, fighting for our liberation, transform the power relationship between men and women. This is not to say that transgender people do not suffer discrimination or violence. Of course, even in, or- even in North America, even in Vancouver, definitely all over the globe, and they deserve safe services. They deserve protection. But it's a mistake to... Um, to have an either-or attitude. People should take care and should make sure that there are services with transgender people, but it should not be on the expenses of services who are now offering comprehensive, in-depth, long-term services to women who are born female. Because one of the reasons that was brought out for this was a BC law from 2016, as well as a federal law, to say that it's it's a violation of someone's human rights to discriminate against them based on gender identity or gender expression. And it to, is. 
Right. But I think you just summed it up perfectly because we are talking about a specific scenario here. And it's not a it's not a one size fits all, I don't think, because the way I see it and correct me if I'm wrong, women who are raped or sexually assaulted need to be able to access a place like Vancouver Rape Relief. And I'm going to be a bit crude here. Uh, They need to know that they can access that place. And there is not a chance that there is going to be anyone in that room with a penis because they should be able to access a safe space where they feel safe. I, I appreciate, um, and it's very true that many, many women um, think and, and feel that way. We got a lot, a lot of messages from past callers. I just saw something on Facebook. Um, a woman said, 20 years ago, you saved my life. I lived, uh, I lived in your transition house with, with, your, with my child. So definitely that, um, that is a sentiment of many, many women. But um, I don't remember what you said when you, you started your question because you, you made two points. Well, the, the idea of the law that, that yes. says it's, it's, it's... So it's not true to say that we are not inconsistent with the law because both the Provincial um, Human Rights Act and the, the Federal Act allowing exceptions exactly for groups like ours that if, if an organization is serving a particular oppressed organization, they are not going to be considered discriminating if they do not serve another group that is protected under the Act. And um, the City Council know and um, our enemy know that in 2003, um, the Provincial Supreme Court in 2005 the Provincial Court of Appeal, and in 2007, the Supreme Court of Canada agreed that we are allowed to operate the way we operate with our policies and our principles, and it's not um, in contradiction to the Human Rights Act and to the Human Rights Code. It's consistent with that because the legislator, both federal and provincial, understands that sometimes to serve one group, you cannot serve another group, and it's consistent with the way the Vancouver sitting city grants are held. There are particular grants to immigrant groups, to native youth, to um, Chinese senior people. They are not expected to be open to all age or to all ethnicity, um, to all cultures, because they are giving a protected group unique services. Exactly. And and you also raised a, a very important point. And no one is suggesting that uh, people that are transgender or people, well, people in any group, really, there is unfortunately discrimination and there is abuse. And no one is suggesting that any group not get the help they need. Exactly. I think the argument here is it just doesn't all fall under the same roof. Exactly. So what yep, do you do now as, as an organization if you lose this funding after 2019? So we got so many heartwarming messages, um, not just from women in Vancouver, around around the world. Message from uh, Portugal, um, France, Germany, England, um, all over North America. We got a lot of donations, a lot, a lot, a lot of small donations of ten and twenty and fifty dollars. The the bigger question is not this particular grant. We are a group of volunteers, and we have so much community support that the work that we used to do or we are doing with this particular grant are public education events that are open and free to everybody. They are intentionally wheelchair accessible. We provide childcare. People of all sex and genders are invited to attend to them. We probably we find it so important for social change. We're not going to do less or um, 
going to ditch our public education work. But the bigger political question is the discrimination of women, discrimination of women's group, discrimination of women's organizations in the name of inclusivity. Because, and I guess that's where it gets difficult too, in that there, there seems to be this push that everybody be open and accepting of everything, which on the surface sounds good, but this is an example of where there are, there are lines drawn and there is a reason that those lines are drawn and that there needs to be a slightly different set of rules, if you will. Exactly. And when the... When Bill C-16, the federal uh, addition to uh, the Human Rights Act, the Minister of Justice assured the Parliament and assured the Senate, because um, some Parliament members and some senators passed ours and other women groups from across the country is concerned that there will not be a situation of transgender people's rights competing or undermining women's uh, rights, women who are born female rights, and that should be the intention, not only that the intention of the law, but that should be the practice on the ground in every provincial and municipal um, authority. And um, even in the city, even in the city guidelines, there is an exception saying every group, every organization of every recipient should be demonstrating welcomeness and accommodation and openness to everybody. And it names all the protected um, criteria, race, age, uh, ethnicity, disability, and underneath that it says a, a group will not be required to save another group or another population if it undermines uh, serving the original population that they work for. So we're not even in contradiction with the city uh, policy. We're just against, um, we're fighting against very, very um, dangerous propaganda of um, it's either or, and that uh, women who were born female have no more room, possibility, opportunity to uh, get services that are directly um, designed for them to meet together, to strategize, to organize, very, very undemocratic and dangerous. And as you said, in the name of good intentions, in the name of uh, inclusivity, inclusivity, there is a... discrimination of women. There is exclusion of women from being from having access to city funding. Uh, so what do you, where do you see the conversation going from here? Uh, yesterday, uh, when Sarah Kirby Young joined the program, she talked about the, the, the amount of just since Wednesday or since this became an issue and people started talking about it, uh, the, the, particularly about the city hall vote, uh, the amount of hate mail she had received and saying uh, she would hate to be somebody on the receiving end of that on, on a consistent basis. And I think it's an interesting point because, again, Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to of see a group targeted not, or hated. And, it, and yes. the, the irony there that that's what's come from this it just seems wrong. I, I totally agree. And none of our supporters, we will not accept anyone who tried to fight for us and playing dirty. It's unacceptable that city council members or anybody who opposing our position will be um, receive hate mails. But I do not believe that the council member was honest. I believe there were a lot of hate mail about us and a lot of propaganda about us. I don't know. I don't think in terms of um, quantity, but definitely the things that they allow people to say about us were utter lies. And the city council uh, members allowed it. So I actually think, and if you see some 
of the things that are being said on social media by a few individuals full of venom and hatred against us. So I do agree there is no room and it's unacceptable for any of it. But I believe that the hatred is not coming from us, not from women equality, nonviolent, pro-democracy women's groups. It's not from us. No. Do you think there's a misunderstanding and that people are taking the stance of Vancouver Rape Relief as if they're implying that in including transgender women and w- people who identify as women introduces a threat to rape relief? Because it's not that. It's saying that, that not painting people that they would be threatening, but it could be the perception of that. It takes away the idea of a safe space. Um, absolutely. I, I just think... I think that people are not expecting small, we are a very small organization. We have 20, 20 members, and most, most of our women are volunteers. We do have hundreds and hundreds of women and, and community support, including um, the good work of allies men. But I think the city was shocked and our enemies were shocked that we say we, do, we will not change how we operate uh, for the sake of money. We have integrity and we are upholding the principles that we build our organization and, and, and operate from. And I think, I think it is a threat. I think so many women's groups across the country had to cave for funding for many, many years now. The women's movement is fragmented. Women's services used to be very radical and very bold in criticizing the state for how it's not protecting women. Because of the funding schemes in all levels, completely lost their courage, completely lost their independence, and um, had to change policies, had to change practices to yield to um, the different um, opportunity or the different political agenda of whomever is giving the money. And it's very rare to say to see women's groups saying, "No, we're not going to do things that we that are unacceptable to us for the sake of money." We ha- especially when we fight for autonomy. Right. Rape is everything about violating women's autonomy. Violence against women is about women's autonomy. The way to restore it, the way to resist is to maintain our individual and our group and our movement's autonomy. All right, uh, Hilo, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time. Thank you again so much for joining us today. I appreciate that. Bye-bye.